So welcome to our Intri podcast. I'm Ninka Kramer. I'm assistant professor at Utrecht University. And I'm very grateful to have taken part of the, uh, in this EU Marie Curie ITN project these last few years, in fact. And I'm a supervisor of one of the 15 early stage researchers. And uh, we tackled the challenge of uh, integrating uh, in vitro assays with um, in, uh, in silico or computational tools. And this will also be the, the uh, topic of this podcast uh, that I will discuss with uh, fellow in three colleagues. Um, and these uh, our panelists for today are Carolina Nunes, uh, Leonie Fronson, Nicoletta Spino, Susanna Poencia, Pranika Singh, Mark Cronin, Emilio Benfinati, Maxime Culot, and uh, Mariana Novic. Um, of course, the others are listening on and they can ask questions uh, in the end or uh, have their input um, spoken. Um, so let me just start. So if I could start with you, Professor Cronin, uh, you're a professor in predictive toxicology at Liverpool John Morris University, and you've led research over the past 20 years actually applying computational tools to predict toxicity. And, the, and therefore you're, you're, you're developing alternatives to animal testing. Do you, could you give the listeners just a very short history of what we mean by this ongoing paradigm shift away from animal testing and chemical safety assessment? Thanks, Ninka. Um, it's really important to put some context behind what we're talking about in, in this particular podcast. And chemical risk assessment has evolved even in my lifetime. And there's a number of reasons for that. Um, and we could spend the next hour just discussing those. So I'll just summarise some of them that I think are particularly important. And we can start probably almost a century ago and certainly go into the 1950s with the, the work of, of Russell and Birch that, that set the scene for, for the three R's. And that gave an impetus particularly to understand the, the issues regarding animal testing uh, and doing things in, in a better and more ethical and less harmful and distressful way. And that's that's one aspect that, that drives us on. But more practically as well, um, we want to do things that are um, more relevant to humans. Um, at the moment, we're, we're extrapolating up from animal species to, to humans um, and also be able to cope with large number of chemicals, make decisions more rapidly and so forth. And another enormous driver um, across the world has, has been legislation, different sectors of, of legislation in Europe. We have the REACH legislation and obviously cosmetics legislation, and they encourage the, the use of alternatives. And I think in the last decade, we've, we've certainly been pushed by the, the concept of 21st century toxicology and the opportunities that the new technologies um, that are just coming online and the new information that we can get very rapidly that's mechanistically based can, can give us. So there's lots of information we, we can use and lots of reasons for going to alternatives and wishing to integrate um, in silico and in vitro. Yeah, so that's uh, that's actually really good. You bring up a good point to say, you mentioned uh, this landmark report uh, of the US uh, National Academy of Sciences toxicity testing in the 21st century. And, and that this has been, well, you could argue a major precipitate, like it precipitated a major change in the way we want to conduct toxicity testing uh, and using what you say, these new, these new techniques, these new technology. I, I know that it specifically envisions 
the transition to these in vitro assays with human cells and, and these assays are considered central, at least the central part of this new testing paradigm um, and arguably not computational or in silico tools, uh, which, uh, which we also, uh, which you work on. You know, if I can ask uh, some of the ESRs here that have been working specifically in these vitro assays. So, for example, Carolina, as an early stage researcher, I know that you've been working on these in vitro assays for the specific purpose. You know, what makes these in vitro assays such, uh, with human cells specifically, such powerful tools? Um, so, I, I'm part of the brain group, so I'm developing uh, models for brain. And I think the, the interest here is not just focusing in one organ. It's actually because we have the ability now to derive models for different organs from the same donor. And that is what I think uh, brings strength to our uh, of this new way of uh, testing. And so it's not just about the brain, because you can always find models to answer your questions. And there's a lot already published and that people are working with. The question here is that we can do different models coming from the same donor. And I think that's the, the strength that we have here. Yeah, yeah. So it's like it's specifically these induced pluripotent stem cells, which allows us to differentiate the same cell from one person to the different organs and, and really look at it um, on a, on a multi-organ level. Um, so so for, that's actually a, a very good point. Um, but then what it sounds like, okay, these are great models. We can, we can make them into uh, different organs. Um, why, why, why is there this necessity then to, to integrate uh, this with, you know, with other, with computational tools? Or why, is, or why are these systems not in and of itself sufficient to actually replace animal testing and toxicity testing? Is there someone who could uh, elaborate on that? Susanna Parenche, I know that you've been integrating these two. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, exactly. So I've been working most on integration of the kinetics, so basically extrapolating uh, uh, chemical hazard characterization into in vivo. Um, I think, I mean, there's probably a lot of reasons, but I see one very clearly. I mean, you do in vitro and never results in a specific uh, system. You can always compare to literature, but I think the in silico really helps actually putting your uh, experiments in context of, of what other people derive and actually predicting something uh, for the future. So it's almost like a way of curating all the data that you get. Well, um, and this is what I found. And I think also was one of the uh, the things that I, when I entered toxicology, I thought was really interesting. I mean, it's not just like going in literature and just reading papers and trying to see if your experiments make sense, but actually if you have models that already accumulate all this information. So it's a, an actually a smarter way of, uh, of um, using your data, let's put it like this. And also in a more evidence-based because uh, then actually sometimes we have contrary results, especially in vitro. Sometimes you show a chemical doesn't affect and sometimes it doesn't. But by creating all these data together, you can actually see what's the most clear uh, result, what's the, what's the most probable uh, result of it. All right. So, so what you're referring to here, Susanna, is if I'm correct, is that you're you're, you're collecting the toxic, so for example, toxic potencies across um, um, a, a toxic potency across a group of chemicals to to to, to collate a, an understanding of this mechanism. 
with, with this, exactly. there are lots of, I can imagine, so computational or in silico tools in toxicology is quite a broad term. Um, I know that you, you yourself have been working on physiologically based kinetic models, and I know we just heard from Mark, and he's a, he's a, a guru, I would say, in quantitative structure activity relationships. And um, but then, the, but we also mentioned it's also curation array. It means uh, computational also means in bringing together big data into one form, and that that would also encompass uh, um, AOPs, adverse outcome pathways, which might not traditionally be seen as a computational tool. Emilio, you had a point as well. Yeah, maybe the way to see the silicometers is. Uh, a uh, very powerful tool to establish a new link between the data and the theory. So, you, you know, in the past, all the progress of science has been uh, from the data, from the evidence experience into something which has been formalized into certain theoretical levels. And uh, now the difficulty is that we have many, many more data, the, the evidence, the heterogeneity of the data is very, very complex. So computers can help in this, but also in silico models can be heuristic, so they can generate new knowledge. So this is a level, a new level between the theory and the data. And I think that way we should think about this possibility and exploit it in the best way. Yeah, that's a, a good point. So that's a, coming back to what Susanna then also, uh, for it's, it's a way to bring together all the, the, the individual data points. Um, Max, I, I know that Max, you've been working on brain barriers uh, for <laughs> for much of your uh, academic career. You, you had your hand up uh, in response to these in vitro assays uh, and their and their limitations. Yes, uh, yeah. Actually, uh, instead of limitation, it's also that uh, I came to realize and based my uh, thinking on the fact that what we are developing currently, and for example, in this project as in vitro models are uh, already very fancy model. Uh, the first ESR we talked said we use IPSC and we can do donor specific uh, and that's great, but I don't see the future as such. I don't think that we will, personally, I don't think that the hope for the future is to have a battery of donor that we can test. I rather think that we should try to use those assay to figure out what is going on and identify why is one specific donor responsive to one specific kind or type of chemical and that's where the in my opinion the in silico should kick in and say okay once we figured out a bit of that uh, now I rely completely on the in silico people to figure out uh, what kind of chemical are gonna trigger this uh, for example molecular initiating events if we figured it out and my expectation is that we are going to develop some fancy model to bring some new knowledge but then I completely rely on the uh, in silico people to take over this knowledge and exploit it uh, because I don't think it's so realistic to, to consider a one-by-one -one replacement thing. We stop with rat and replace them by uh, cells in box. Uh, this is not my uh, futuristic view on the future. Maybe I will be retired at the time it will uh, kick in. But my expectation for the future is that the knowledge will be integrated in silico and then the in silico models will uh, 
be the realistic way of testing the compounds. And something else that I noticed as well is that we have this tendency of sometimes a bit, in my opinion, underestimating what we already achieved because uh, we are moving away from animals and we are well aware of the uh, fact that these animal models are far from being perfect. And I'm pretty sure we somehow already uh, collectively as a scientific field uh, achieved a, a decent alternative to that. It's just that as scientists, we are pushed to go for something much better. So we are not aiming for predicting toxicity in animals. We aim to predict toxicity in humans and not only one uh, random humans, but we want to be able to do population based. We want to be able to predict toxicity in uh, different ages and things like that. So we aim for very high expectation. So that, that, that's a that's a very interesting view. I could I, I would argue. So you're actually arguing that in vitro is just <laughs> the, an in between step from in vivo to in silico. Am I correct? And in, 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 uh, in, in uh, summarizing that, so so in vitro is really just meant to to help us get an understanding of the physiology and the and the yeah and that uh, to to use our jargon adverse outcome pathways and networks uh, so that we can use our computational tools to actually do the predict to, to do the prediction so that uh, it's, it, it, do others agree with that uh, well, mariana you you, uh, you yeah <laughs> maybe i i just wanted to add uh, add uh, even before but i completely agree and these are complementary tools, actually, this in vitro and in silico. And I think uh, they, they uh, just uh, fill some, some gaps, maybe, that are not achieved by one or the other approach. Uh, and uh, what is uh, what I found out uh, <laughs> is the main difference between this uh, in, in vitro and in silico tools is actually the in, in vitro tools produce... Uh, uh, a, a lot of information on a smaller system, while in silico tools, especially those that uh, QSRs, for example, they, they uh, have, have to have a lot of data uh, and just on, on a certain amount of, of field of information and, and to, to use this statistical, um, let's say, um, uh, the uh, information that is uh, contained in this large data uh, can be then then somehow complemented to the to the part that uh, you have on a smaller system you know, and the in vitro people have a information on smaller systems uh, from the viewpoint of large data that we are using it and I think uh, from this point of view these methods are complementary and I don't think would <laughs> completely supplement. <clears throat> the in silico is uh, at the end okay approach to to artificial intelligence is like having but then we have we have to have uh, so much uh, data and so much information of already available uh, that this would be sufficient to decide in future but, uh, for this i think it's not yet <laughs> so close Oh, that's a, it's going to be, we'll, and we'll end on that question, I think, and ask everyone how long it will take. <laughs> uh, we'll leave that for the end. Um, Mark Cronin, you, you, you wanted to respond to, uh, to Mariana's uh, comment on, on, on this notion of, of, of the small versus the big uh, in vitro versus the in silico. Well, not really. Um, 
complement but maybe extend it a little bit and I think we just need to remember with particularly QSAR and the way we're using QSAR it's the end point that we need to think about and we've got different uses so for instance if if someone is preparing a, a dossier for reach um, the purpose of the QSAR there is very specific and that is to predict um, the, the regulatory endpoint, which, which can be a very, very um, difficult thing to do for, for our complex toxicities. We, we, we know that. The alternative is, of course, to, to, to add to, to a weight of evidence. Um, so you're predicting something that will add to a weight of evidence that will predict a, a regulatory endpoint. And, and the chemicals agency, ECHO, are, are very, very clear on that if, if you actually read what, what they're saying and, and their guidance. I think where we're going now is um, the future, which uh, we can think about it, a world where uh, we're going to reconsider or we can, we've got the opportunity possibly to, to reconsider chemicals legislation and integrate different types of evidence. So here we will want to um, use in vitro information to drive the kinetics and nuclear initiating events and capture that through, through in silico toxicology. But then what we're having is in silico models for molecular initiating events and kinetics, and somehow we need to turn that into a, a, something relating to safety um, and making a decision relating to, to safety, which is different from uh, the way, as you said, many years ago I started in QSAR, and we were predicting endpoints. Um, and so we're producing a lot of information, and I think, you know, this podcast is is really thinking about integration. It is that integration, how we're going to do that, and indeed the need we're going to for it, uh, and what it's going to provide. Well, that's an, a very interesting point. So, if if I could reword or rephrase that, what you're saying is like the way we do computational toxicology has changed, uh, probably in light of maybe the the in vitro. Toxicology that has come in, has come up. So, so instead of uh, predicting uh, an endpoint, uh, a broader like like uh, Marianne also mentioned, uh, you know, the, you know, the, a lethal dose, for example, you're actually going to use these same types or similar types of models, but here you're predicting actually just a smaller. Uh, a, a, a smaller puzzle piece, <laughs> um, but then arguably more, it will be more predictive because it's more mechanistic if you combine that with a, a suite of, of in silico and in vitro approaches then. Yeah, I, I don't think it's changing and I don't think it's evolving, it's expanding. Our, our, our capabilities are expanding. We're, we're still going to want to predict the regulatory endpoints. We're still going to want to predict um, skin sensitization or whatever it is um, from from structure, we will still continue to do that. Um, and we're evolving and we're getting better methods for, for doing that. But we're also um, expanding our approaches. And, and we can particularly see that in the last few years, going to different endpoints. But I, all, what I'm saying, I guess, is let's not lose sight of what we're trying to do and how we're going to use this information. Yeah, that's a very, very fair point. Emilia Benfinati, I know that you've been working just like on Mark, with Mark on these QSARs. Have, has that changed for you too in the way, you, what you're predicting or what you're aiming to predict? 
Has that expanded, as Mark has said? Yeah, elaborating, uh, coming back to what has been said by Mark and also Maxime. So, let's say on, on the long term, Maxime, he, he proposed and he claimed that a certain level of in silico will be the only way. I think that this can be achieved only in the hypothesis that at the basis of in silico models we have all the possible pieces of information, which is quite ambitious. So how far are we from this phase where the in silico reaches the, the truth and the gap of knowledge is uh, very small? I think it depends on the cases. And so the point is that in some situation for some chemical, for, for some endpoints, we have sufficient level of reliability but in many, many other cases, we still need the, the, the data, we still need multiple, let's call them line of evidence, multiple data, multiple sources of, of information. And this, I think, is also what Mark was saying. So we are moving from the approach where we took into, into consideration the individual pieces. Now we are facing the reality that the, what we're thinking about is really a mosaic of many, many components. And depending on the level of uncertainty, we need support from the, the different line of evidence with the different kind of data from omics uh, in vitro and in silico and the me mechanisms. So I think that this is the process, as uh, Mark was saying, with the idea to cover as much as possible the gap of knowledge. Yeah, that's a very fair point. I'd like to take a ticket out um, back and we'll come back on the issue of, of, of where where we're going and how long it will take but just uh, to relate this specifically to to in three so I just want to take the next uh, few minutes I know that uh, so a couple of all the users in this panel they um, you've all been working on specific aspects of, of, of this uh, of, of, a, of a new uh, gen next generation risk assessment approach um, I know that uh, one of you, Pranika, I know that to, to point to, to point at you now is that you're the one who's been who's been working on on this uh, what I would call big data issue. You know, is that your these in vitro assays that uh, that your colleagues generated generated a whole lot of genetic, um, gene expression changes and profiles. Um, What's your views on, on the necessity of, of integrating uh, uh, that work for, for actual risk assessment? What, what, what would we need? Like what, how did your, 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 your um, automated pay, pipelines, for example, help uh, in, in, in using in vitro data for risk assessment? So, I mean, uh my pipeline does not exist if we don't have data. So definitely like whatever data we get from the in vitro essays, which all my colleagues have generated and 
already the existing data which is already there especially from the animal models so uh, integrating them uh, through through algorithms and through computational method i think is is very important for the risk assessment because we can use the the data which is already existing in the new one to predict things and to see how our in vitro studies are replicating or are not not able to replicate what we already had from the in vivo studies for example and this is what i have been also trying to do and see uh if what we see in the animal data or what we already know from the animal data is something which we can also see in the in vitro data and for that uh like the workflow which i created was to to see the gene expression analysis of of the uh gene expression analysis which was induced by the different compounds and to see if that is something which is already known or is this something which is a new new knowledge so i think both of them kind of goes hand in hand the in silico and the and the in vitro or the in vivo or yeah mm-hmm. it's, it's yeah Yeah, it's a fair point you're bringing up. So we should not forget that we might not want to do any more animal testing in the future, but let's not forget the the data that's already there. That's yeah, because I think before this we had only like more experiments were done on animals, so yeah. we should not leave it behind. We should keep it with us. Of course, yeah. the in vitro experiments now, and they would I hope would prove to be. an alternative for the animal but we should not forget and we should not discard the data which we already have yeah. so that would be the actual integration between the computational methods and the new yeah. generation uh, experimental methods which we are trying to do especially in our uh, project as well yeah that's a very fair point it's like so we're not only integrating in vitro and computational tools we're in vitro vivo and computational yeah. tools and 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 that i can i can imagine these in vivo data they're they're essential also for for validation purpose but also for understanding uh, and and relating um effects across uh, multi organ systems for example um but also across uh, across chemicals this i would imagine is also the necessary information that would go into adverse outcome pathways um which would would be the the backbone of how we actually integrate the the the, the readouts from different uh, types of toxicity tests whether it's computational or in vitro and vivo and then, so that that brings me then to to Nicoletta who's who's been working on on AOPs and and you've been like uh, Pranika been collecting data and trying to 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 fashion it into something uh, something concrete could you explain what uh, what you think about uh, how your work is is essential in the integration of 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 these new tools for next generation risk assessment well i think what i'm going to say might be as a way to promote the aop concept um perfect <laughs> that's the way uh, indeed for in my case working with it for the past almost four years and um what i saw or what i've learned actually was that the the amount of evidence that we have needs to be created needs somehow to be organized and the op allows us for us to organize it and secondly when we talk about qsr models for example we use the data in order to understand patterns in the data 
So to understand the associations between the molecular descriptors of the compounds of interest. While with AOP, we actually go deeper in understanding the causal effect um, between the different biological levels um, that, for example, a chemical can lead to and finally helping us understand what, uh, when exactly from an adaptive homeostatic process actually it happens with toxic effect. Um, it's, I would say also that initially the AOP itself was mainly developed based on a systematic review where it, it, used, it utilized um, different type of information, including quantitative, including in vitro studies, because you want some sort of quantitative level of evidence to support that qualitative assumption that uh, you make. Nowadays, there is more and more interest in developing new ways uh, of developing LPs and using data mining, for example, is one way, but also relying on high throughput data um, as well to identify new key events, um, new biological effects. And so the integration is is right here because, for example, what Pranika has done can also validate what we know until now, or maybe identify new points further to analyze. Also, using QSR can help to prioritize directions in terms of what compounds maybe need additional investigation. And without in vitro, I don't think things can go further at this point. Yeah, yeah. So, like in vitro. Is still very, very necessary, Max, from what I understand <laughs> from this discussion. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll, I'll continue just re, um, uh, for the last few minutes and then we go to and end with the, the last questions of how long will this take. Uh, but first, uh, so, so we've had AOPs, we've, we've looked at, at this transatomics data and the, and the analysis of this big data. Um, but I know there's a, a, a computational tool that we've not discussed much yet here, but is, is I would argue is very central for, um, for, for doing actual and deriving, for example, reference doses or, 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 or margins of exposure or margins of, of safety for, for chemicals, new chemicals. Um, and that's physiologically based kinetic modeling or PVK modeling. Um, uh, I know that Susanna, you, you've been integrating Carolina's uh, neurotoxicity data from her IPSC systems and trying to predict uh, human uh, exposure scenarios that 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 you would um, suspect are are uh, neurotoxic. Could you just explain um, what you did to the to the listener and and how that's so vital uh, for 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 next generation risk assessment? Yes, I can. <laughs> Thanks. Indeed. So we focused uh, mostly actually on the case of the, the brain with the, with the case study of Carolina and with the specific component of amiodarone. But it really, it's, I think it's uh, actually very basic in the sense that uh, if we want to use in vitro uh, models uh, to perform chemical uh, hazard, uh, hazard characterization, so basically if we really want to understand these dose response curves or relationships, we actually need this uh, PBK because one thing is what we test in the in our in vitro system. So um, we add a certain dose to the system and uh, already there, you, maybe not everything is bioavailable, but I think even more important, like what we had to the system, how is that equivalent to what's in the whole body? So I think, uh, I mean, these, these models are actually an essential key because you cannot really... <laughs> 
perform risk assessment then because if um, all, all is poisoned uh, depending on the dose, <laughs> Um, then I think the dose is one of the most important things for toxicology because I think, and this is a, still a notion that I think still needs to enter sometimes uh, uh, even in more, more in toxicology because we tend to test doses without realizing if they are actually physiological uh, relevant. And you can find anything. It doesn't mean that it actually will happen in your uh, body. And um but then there's another point. So the PBK can uh, uh, basically perform the extrapolation of the, these uh, curve dose responses from in vitro. But we can also, the, the PBK can be parameterized and traditional was parameterized maybe with uh, animal data or with uh, clinical data in humans. Uh, but and but this is usually, for example, clinical data in humans only available for drugs and drugs that already went through the development uh, phase. Uh, but also nowadays, you also have in vitro methods to actually derive these uh, parameters. And that is also where we are working a little bit then. Uh, so for metabolism or for oral absorption, understanding how much a compound binds to proteins in serum. So we, we can also actually perform it nowadays uh, uh, in, in vitro and actually also use QSARs already. So I, I think it's a very interesting development uh, to use both to parameterize the the, the the curves of response, but also the parameters in the PBK. Yeah, so, so you have computational models and the vitro models going into a computational model. <laughs> to exactly. to so it's a, yeah, it's a very good, I think, example of how you actually uh, collate data, very different data from different things to, to make a whole model, a whole human body, a whole yeah, human body, exactly. Yeah system um, to actually a whole risk assessment uh, process that's it well thanks uh, thanks for that explanation i'm, I'm gonna um uh, end it, uh, the last minute and ask each of you to to give uh, to give the listeners a bit of a time frame that you think um we we can do um without animal testing and toxicity testing and and what's what's what so that's part eight and what's the most important next step that we need to get right to to make uh, uh, to make uh, the, to make use of next generation risk assessment max so if you know you know, I know that you've been uh, 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 been working on this issue for a while what do you think is the time frame yeah, it's I, I don't have a proper answer to that, obviously, but uh, what I'm asking myself is, do we need a ban on the use of animals to start using something else? Because if you look at what happens in cosmetic, uh, maybe the ambition was not uh, as strong as the one of uh, completely stopping animals for uh, all chemicals. And it might be a risky move, because if we don't bring a solution fast, then we might end up with problems. So I don't say this is what uh, should be done, but uh, you should expect that if there is a ban, then obviously uh, we here in this uh, frame of the EU project have benefited already uh, for some funding uh, on that topic, but you should expect a lot more funding and uh, activities from industries that are already on board and they are already funding our research. But obviously if they have no other uh, possibilities and uh, developing those alternatives to animals, you should maybe expect that this ban would clearly uh, change the game. And then there would be a, a huge investment uh, for uh, not only industries, but also all countries uh, who want their developments to go further to invest in those topics. And with this kind of uh, investment, you should expect some results in the end. And 
So I don't know whether we are ready to uh, implement that move yet, but in my opinion, this is definitely something that would speed up the process for sure. Yeah, yeah, you can see, you could argue, they call it, the bands have been pretty effective at getting a, uh, getting us to scramble, I would say, <laughs> for methods to, to, to find an alternative to, to continue putting new chemicals on the market. Um, but uh, when we're not there yet, now there's just no new chemicals coming on the market when it comes to uh, cosmetics. Um, but, how, you know, if you, if you had to put a time frame on it, what, what if we just look at cosmetics, for example, what, 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 uh, when, when can we be doing this and that's accepted? Anybody dare <laughs> burn their fingers here? Yes, Susanna. Okay, I mean, I'm going to throw in your, so I don't know, for cosmetics, I will say like 10 years, maybe we don't need animal uh, studies. <laughs> Um, but I think I'm always wondering also what uh, would be the difference in between cosmetics and drugs. Of course, cosmetics are not as essential uh, maybe for society, and that's why we put this rule first. But actually, from the toxicological point of view or from the kinetics, is it any different? Because if we can do for cosmetics, why can't we do for others, right? And I think that's a, a better question. So I, I would put 10 years maybe for cosmetics... Just because, in my opinion, I mean, in most of them you actually just put in your skin, so you have a very specific absorption. So they usually, again, from my kinetic uh, bias, would be compounds that maybe don't tend to accumulate greatly uh, in the human body. So usually you, you can more easily see the effects. Um, although I would say, uh, not being an expert, that usually I think the immunological points, uh, for example, are some of the most difficult ones to predict. And uh, I'm not really sure if uh, in vitro it's there yet, for example. But also uh, another issue, I think we always talk about um, ending with animal experimentation. Is of course, I think for, for drugs that are meant to be for human, that makes sense. But we have the whole issue of the pollutants and also, okay, veterinary drugs. And there you, you will still have animals. And I mean, especially for environmental, you still need actually and even have more diversity maybe of... Uh, but even there, then we can ask ourselves, like, should we also try to have in vitro uh, models of other animals? I think <laughs> we have ideas of uh, projects, right, of um, to try to actually have in vitro of dolphins or of uh, whatever animals, because actually it's a much more controlled environment in our laboratory to really make sure the, the whole species or the whole ecosystem is actually healthy. Um, but that's my, my point of view. <laughs> That's a level of complexity, yeah, <laughs> what you're saying. <laughs> Carolina, you uh, had your hand up. So I think it will be very important uh, how this will evolve for the cosmetics if they will start developing new formulations with new compounds. Because as you said, till now, since the ban, there was not anything really new in, in, in the field. They are testing new formulations, but in terms of compounds, everyone is a bit, or from my point of view, a bit afraid of putting something new that they cannot test in animals, at least in Europe. Uh, so I think it will be very important when they make that step and then the others will have courage maybe to follow. But of course, this will depend on how the extrapolations from in vitro to in vivo will also be. And it's, it's a very important part of our project that we are trying to make these connections in between in vivo, uh, in vitro, and uh, in silico. 
So I hope that if these two things grow along and uh, if, if they are successful, I would like, I would say 20 years. So when we, <laughs> the young investigators, we will arrive to like our 40s, 50s, maybe we will arrive there. I hope, I hope I can, give, I can leave that to the next generation. <laughs> Nice. So good goal to go for. Veronica, you had a, your hand up as a last uh, <laughs> and the speaker who you can wrap it all up here for the listener. I think I, I would I actually agree with Susanna and Carolina both. And I think with the cosmetics it's easier because it's just the skin, so the root of exposure, it's not going inside our body like a drug does. So I mean I'm also not an expert, but I think it will take us like two or three decades to reach there. And also we need to like, you know, show and increase the in vitro testing and models and show that they are very robust and we can use them as an alternative to the animal models. Because if we are more convincing on that side, then definitely people would start uh, encouraging and investing for the in vitro testing than on animal testing. So I think we have a long way to go as I see it, because uh, in the end, even as a consumer, I would be a little uh, scared if I have to take a drug which was not tested on a whole, whole animal or something, or just on cells. Yeah. So to really show that, that yes, you can also 100% rely on the in vitro testing, I think we need to put more efforts and more funding and research to show that this is actually an alternative to what we have been doing with animals. That's a very fair point. That that ties up with uh, with Max's uh, point earlier. That, um, you know, so for cosmetics, we have a ban, and it's 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 uh, it's led to quite, including this research at in three. It's led to quite uh, some new research initi- initiatives. Would it, you know, say, would bans uh, more, you know, not just in cosmetics, um, because as as a Susanna mentioned like that that you know like tend to be chemicals that should should be safe anyways and, and, and applied in a specific route. Um, would a would a more general ban increase the funding and the research that we need and, and or is that a too risky move? I hope our listeners have uh, have plenty of information to go by and formulate their own ideas and. Uh, to communicate it with us uh, i enjoyed doing this thank you so much for um for uh, giving coming up here and uh, letting us know what you think um and uh, up to the next podcast thank you <laughs>